The city isn't dead. If you listen to the station, you'll receive an alternative education. When you feel like lame tunes have got you in a chokehold, turn on 88.3, giving vocals back to the locals. W to the C, don't forget the BN. You better listen to this even when you're taking BMs. They make sure they keep the beats coming. Dial 763 to the 3500. WCBM FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio Masha Gessen. Masha, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, well, it's good to see you. And, and I should say we're taping this program the 2nd of November 2015. Um, Masha Gessen is in town. She's here in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan to receive the 2015 Wallenberg Medal, um, which will be happening this week. Um, but without further ado, what I'll do is we'll start by reading the, the latest bio from the book, The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, out this year with Riverhead Books. Masha Gessen is a Russian-American journalist and the author, most recently, of the national bestseller, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, and Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. Her award-winning work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Slate, Vanity Fair, The New York Review of Books, and elsewhere. A longtime resident of Moscow, she now lives in New York City. (laughs) And Masha, it's so great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like this is um, exciting on, in so many ways uh, because, oh, actually, and also the 2015 Andrew Carnegie uh, Fellow. What, what, was, what, what is that? Because I actually am not familiar with that. What kind of fellowship is that? It's, uh, it's a great fellowship. It's a new <laughs> it fellowship. It, this is the first year that they've done it. Uh, it's called the, the Andrew Carnegie Millennial Fellowship. Um, Starting with the best. Uh, <laughs> And um, and it's basically it's like uh, I think they're trying to position it as sort of mini MacArthur because because um, you you get um, uh, it's a, it, it's it's a very simple application process and what they're trying to encourage I think are different kinds of public intellectuals so um, thirty different academics uh, uh, thirty different people got the fellowship this year. 28 of them academics and two of them journalists. So I'm very proud to be one of the two journalists. Um, and it's and it's people, you know, working on pretty large projects that a lot of which have to do with sort of what's happening with the world and international relations and the world order. Uh, well, then, then I can't see possibly why you would be <laughs> adapted for this, Masha. Um, how exciting! How how exciting! It is, it is, and it uh, it's really nice to just be to have the support just to work on my book for a couple of years and and not think about um, money all the time. Well, this is sort of maybe a weird way to begin, but mm-hmm. what's the present project then? And then we'll look at the books that we have on the table with uh, us it's, today. It's a good way to begin because obviously that's what I'm interested in. Unlike <laughs> the books that I've actually already written. <laughs> so, uh, Although these are interwoven, it's sort of this amazing true, experience true. to to see them as a 
in in relation to each other. But yeah, what are you working on now? Um, I'm I'm actually working on a new book about Russia. Uh, so the 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 first Putin book, which came out in 2012, leaves off in. 2012, as Putin is coming into office uh, the, uh, the, uh, to, be, to begin his third term as president, right? So he's now been in power in Russia basically for uh, 16 years and three presidential terms. And didn't he and, have the, the intervening person that when he took that short break, right. changed the law so he could then have six year terms? Exactly. That... Exactly. So, uh, you know, the Russian Constitution is uh, is funny. It uh, it was written basically uh, almost overnight by a group of people who were very rushed. This was during the constitutional crisis of 1993. And um, and there's some there's some problems with the language in the Constitution. One of the problems actually has to do with the article on uh, presidential terms. Because the article can, um, says that the president can serve no more than two consecutive terms. Uh, which, And it's actually not clear what that means. Does it mean that the president can serve no more than two terms if they come consecutively? Right. So if the president doesn't get reelected after his or her first term, he or she cannot run for a second term because the maximum amount is two consecutive terms, right? Or does it mean <laughs> that only two terms can be served consecutively, but if they're non-consecutive, then you can serve as many ter terms as you want, which is the way that Putin has chosen to interpret it. And his Very convenient his, for him. His pocket constitutional term has, uh, uh, court has agreed. So all he wanted to do was step aside for four years, keep so have someone keep his chair warm, the first thing that Dmitry Medvedev, the, that that um, uh, the, that pseudo president, did. I know you want to call him sort of an interim sort of exactly. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, um, so the first thing he did was change the constitution to uh, to extend the term from four to six years, so that when Putin came back in, he came back in with the intention of serving twelve years. Uh, by the time he is done, he will, uh, well, if he is ever done, if he is done with those two terms, of tw uh, two 12-year terms, he will have been in power in Russia for, let me see, about uh, 24 years. So that's uh, it's longer than Brezhnev, nearly as long as Stalin. And, uh, and he'll be quite an old man by that point, or not, be, not quite old, I guess. Not in uh, today's yeah. years, yeah. yeah. But, uh, and, you know, he'll, I'm sure he'll still be horse, horseback riding with his bare chest but um, one hopes <laughs> you can't unsee that can right. you masha <laughs> so um so anyway what the what the new book is about is what's happened in the last three and a half years because i think it is a new period in russian uh, politics and russian history uh it's a period when the uh, when the regime that had been post-ideological for 12 years has acquired an ideology. And with that ideology, and with a political crackdown, has acquired many of the features of a totalitarian regime. I don't think it's it's a totalitarian regime, but I think it has those characteristics. And I think something weird has happened, which is that it's sort of been retrofitting totalitarianism. Right? We've, um, the, the 20th century saw how totalitarian regimes are, dis, uh, are constructed. But we had never seen before what happens when a long-lasting totalitarian state collapses, uh, and then after a while it begins to, to be reconstructed, which is what mm -hmm. I think is happening in Russia. So that's that's the process I'm trying to describe. So it's a big book. It's like a big Russian book. <laughs> it's going to be the epic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and and Masha for this, uh, the, so in this this time frame. Um, 
Putin is, you've even, you've actually even met him since the, after this, after, so the book that we were talking about is The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. And, and this book, you started us, start us off where we sort of meet um, Putin and he's, uh, he gets to also create not only retrofit this totalitarian regime, but also sort of create his own biography, like the life of a young thug. And, and we meet him, he's sort of like, you, like the title says, great titles always, by the way, um, uh, that he, he wanted to be um, pictured as a thug. And you said he was sort of always going to be a KGB man. And then it seemed like at a certain point there was an absence after Yeltsin and they somehow decided to choose Putin to sort of fill this vacuum because they thought he may be malleable. Right. Um, well, yes. And uh, that was that was a, a famous mistake at this point. Um, Seriously. So, um, so it, when Boris Yeltsin, the first post-Soviet Russian president, was winding up his second term, and and he was, you know, he was there were a lot of issues and uh, interesting features to the, to Yeltsin, uh, the person in the Yeltsin presidency. Well, he but was he had, very character. It was he was a character. He almost seems like the very opposite of absolutely, what Putin would absolutely. He was he was really a larger than life character and uh, and full of contradictions and and full of passion, and um, he uh, he had a passion for for democracy. He was also very much a product of the nomenclatura. So those 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 forces were um, sort of uh, in, doing battle in, inside him, but certainly one thing he never considered was changing the constitution or or canceling elections or or, um, or staying longer than his legal uh, limit. And um, as his as he was winding down his his second term, he realized that if, if the opposition came to power, they may want to prosecute him for some of the things that had happened in the 1990s. So his, uh, his, his inner circle began the project of looking for a successor, somebody who could be handpicked and who could guarantee Yeltsin immunity from prosecution. That was pretty much their only concern. And um, that's so strange, isn't it, to think about it was so self... Um selfish in a way, not thinking about legacy, like sort of even the larger idea of legacy or, or tra what's transformationally happening in the country. Because cause you returned in the 90s to be, be a journalist, to be part of this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the country in the early 90s, the country was really swept up in the sort of the hope of, of creating a new project. And you were in your 20s, right? I Masha? was in my 20s. Because you had left at 14 with right. your family, um, immigrated to Boston right. area. And right. then you so decided. I, 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 yeah, my family came to this country when I was 14 in 1981. And then basically starting in 91, I, uh, <laughs> I started going back to Russia and then eventually stayed there. And um, uh, so, 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 with, 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 I mean, I, I think you're right to point out just how self-preserving this project of looking for a successor to Yeltsin was, and it very much uh, it was very much important of what was going to, have to to come, right? Because Putin's regime is mostly concerned with self-preservation and self-perpetuation. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, and the foundation of that was laid when Putin was chosen. So Yeltsin, um, at that point, he didn't have a lot of charismatic politicians surrounding him. In fact, none. He sort of alienated <laughs> all of them. Sort of the third tier bureaucrats at this they, point. They, they, or, they, they or were, so the yeah. They were, they were faceless bureaucrats because, uh, and this was where Yeltsin's nomenclatura roots had really come into play. He had started out surrounded by talented, interested, motivated risk takers. And then Who by would the create time, a constitution overnight. Exactly. That, that sort of <laughs> we thing. can do and, it. <laughs> you know, and uh, and 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 institute shock therapy in the economy, which has been very controversial and had a lot of, uh, I think, negative and positive consequences. But anyway, this, these were big steps, and these were big people taking these big steps. By the late 1990s, the big people were either uh, they had left politics or they were in the opposition, and so. And so Yeltsin was looking for uh, the lineup was basically these faceless bureaucrats. And the choice could have fallen on another faceless bureaucrat with perhaps lesser ambitions or a lesser instinct. And this is where I one of the rare places where I would give Putin credit, because I don't think Putin is smart or uh, I don't think he is a strategic thinker in any way. But he's got amazing instincts for holding on to power. And um, and so if if they'd chosen someone with lesser instincts, it may have all turned out differently. He chose Putin. Putin did not turn out to be malleable. Putin, uh, in fact, because of his very strong power instincts, very quickly got rid of all the tethers that had connected him to the previous mm-hmm. regime. Mm-hmm. Oh, so not so he's a man without a face, <laughs> but now. Now we we see that face, and that face has been sort of unfolding for all these years, Masha. We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back today on the program. Masha Gessen is here. We've just been talking about Masha's book, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, out in 2012 with Riverhead Books. We also have on the table, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, and The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, um, the latest out in 2015. Now for a short break with a little bit of music from Pussy Riot.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Masha Gessen is here in the studio. Uh, we're just hearing a little bit of Pussy Riot's song. And that and that one is Putin Will Teach You to Love the Motherland. Masha, is that is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, that, uh, you, you know... Um, Pussy Riot came uh, September 2014 as Pussy Riot Zona Prava to, to speak here at the university, Masha. And so we were able to talk with them a little bit on the radio um, from an undisclosed location at a hotel <laughs> town. Mm-hmm. And so that that was, it seems sort of lovely because that's when the first time when I got a chance to take a, a look and read your book, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. Um so maybe we'll take a moment and talk about this this book, the writing of this book, if you don't mind. Sure. Maybe more than a moment, right? <laughs> right. Um, could, yeah. Could you tell us, like, how how did your relationship with Pussy Riot, um, the art protest performance collective, um, which is many people, <laughs> um, and how when, how did this begin, and how did the book start? Right. Uh, so this this was a really fun book to write, uh, and I, I wrote it very quickly in um, 2013 uh, when two of the Pussy Riot members were, were in jail. So um, Masha and Nadia, Masha and Nadia. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the way the book began was that I'd actually I'd I'd finished the Man Without a Face, and uh, and I thought that my next book I was I was feeling very optimistic briefly. Uh, uh, because this was uh, this was the uh, I, fi- I finished it during the protests of 2011-2012, and it really uh, being on the inside of the protests, it really felt like something was going to change. Lasting, right? Uh, I'm sorry, like that it would be lasting. Well, not that the protests were were going well, to be lasting, but the, but, but the ideas, but that uh, that something. That something was going to be uh, was going to change. That there was no way that this could just dissipate. Which is, of course, exactly what happened. It did just dissipate, and now, you know, three and a half years later, looking back, I, I think I see sort of all the problems that were there from the beginning of the protests that actually uh, didn't bode so well for the for the outcome. But I didn't see those at the time. So, so I thought, that, would that be a different epilogue then, uh, Masha? For if you were for, going yes, to, there would have been yeah. a different epilogue to the man without a face. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, and certainly one lesson I learned is never write an epilogue based on something that just happened last week. Uh, and um, so, so I thought that my next book would be about the sort of the 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 the, the fall of Vladimir Putin, and uh, I was um, I was blogging a lot. I was, I was I was saving string, as they say, for for this new book. And then at some point, I realized that no, what I was actually trying to document was the political crackdown and sort of the mechanics of the political crackdown. And the best way to write about it was to write that story through Pussy Riot. Uh, Pussy Riot. So let's talk about what Pussy Riot is not, right? Okay. Pussy Riot is not a, a a punk rock band, which is how it's usually been identified in this country. Pussy Riot is actually a uh, a, a collective, uh, an open membership collective, right? So anybody can be Pussy Riot. And Don't it's, you love that? Yes, that, I think it's really, it's 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 really idea. fabulous, and um, and it's 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 a protest art collective, right? So. That protest art collective came up with a character called Pussy Riot. Uh, and that character was a fictional feminist punk band. 
And then they recorded a song as the fictional feminist punk band, and they liked it so much that they recorded another song. But um, <laughs> but there's I mean there's it's a fine distinction, but there is a difference between sort of being Pussy Riot and performing Pussy Riot. And um, and what they were doing was they were performing Pussy Red, and um, and several of the people who were doing that got arrested after a protest in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, which is the biggest, gaudiest, most awful cathedral in central Moscow. They um, three people, three women, were unmasked. Uh, and technically, by their own rules, the moment they were unmasked, they stopped being Pussy Riot. Because you can only be Pussy Riot oh. while you're wearing a balaclava, while you're anonymous. If you're not anonymous, you're not exactly Pussy Riot. Uh, <laughs> so, um, again, it's, it's, it's a fine distinction. But, you know, when, even when Nadia and Masha these days, even when they talk as Pussy Riot, they do it wearing their balaclavas. Or, or else they talk, about Nadia, uh, they talk as Nadia or they, they talk as, you know, as, as Masha. So, so three women got sentenced to two years in prison for that 42nd peaceful protest. And one ended up being released after six months, and then uh, two of them and that was served. Uh, that was that was that was Katya, and then two of them served out their sentences. And um, the thing, uh, the thing about it is this: this was they were arrested, you know, three and a half years ago. They were sentenced three years ago, and at the time, it was absolutely shocking because they were the first people in Russia to be sentenced for peaceful protest. Now it's just three years later, and that's just like old hat. There are dozens of people who have been sentenced for peaceful protest. So in that sense, I thought, you know, because they were the first, and because their trial was so, so Kafkaesque, and it really exposed what uh, w- w- the way that the political and the judicial system in Russia have devolved, I thought this was a, an incredible way to tell the story of what's happening in Russia right now. Very sort of a very close look at just this one case. And so, with these people, like more, more, more and more people then being jailed for the the protesting, is that um, causing more fear, or is that causing something that might again bring people to the streets that felt hopeful? Um, a few years ago. Well, it certainly changed things because, you know, when people were coming out into the streets in 2011, 2012, there was very little fear, almost none, and and there was a lot of hope. And uh, that balance has really shifted, and it's shifted for a number of reasons. One, uh, the hope has sort of uh, seeped away because nothing happened because it was very clear that the regime was responding not with uh, soft reforms, which at first it seemed like it might, mm. but with an all-out crackdown. For a dictator, it's much it's much smarter to respond with a crackdown than it is with uh, with sort of trying to diffuse the movement um, by, by instituting soft reforms. It actually is much more effective. So you are saying dictator. Oh, I'm absolutely saying dictator. I mean, that's not a that's not even I think a, a, mm-hmm. a question at this point. Um, but um, uh, so that's 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 why the hope dissipated and um, and the fear really grew uh, for a number of reasons. One was that there were several changes made to the laws, 
as soon as Putin came back into office. And I mean, as soon as he came back into office in the spring of 2012, uh, he, uh, they raised the fines for so-called violations of public assembly laws, which they also made more restrictive. And the fines are backbreaking. You know, um, at the time, there were... Um, uh, now, I'm not going to be able to, to give you the exact figure. Anyway, there were large fines, right? Yes. Um, there are also potential jail sentences. Uh, so that's the risks. You know, these are these are direct threats. If you come out and protest, mm -hmm. you are risking losing a lot of money and possibly losing your freedom. But the other thing they did is they charged um, 28 different people who were not organizers or leaders of the protests. They charged them with crimes connected with the protests. And most of these people went to jail. And the fact that they picked out not the not the leaders, right, but ordinary protesters, and at, le in at least one case, somebody who doesn't seem to have participated in protests at all. Was maybe a bystander. Uh, it doesn't seem like he was there at all. Or uh, not at all. No, not, not even at all. Like, not no. even in the vicinity. No. Uh, so... So, so it could be anyone, basically. It that's the message. That's it's, the message. You're not. You don't have to be the leader. Right. So the so so the way it's changed is that there's no hope, and the risks are huge. Basically, you risk everything for what? For a symbolic act. Right. Right. There's no mechanism to have your protest uh, uh, lead to any consequences. So the reason to come out into the street uh, at this point is if you just cannot be silent. Mm. Right, uh, and that's a, that's that's a good reason, a big reason for some people. Right. And another, and also important, is to look at uh, to to look other people in the face, right? To see other people like you who think the the same way, because it can be very isolating to live in a country like Russia and not have the same opinion as the right. Kremlin. Right. Well, and that's what, and that's the purpose of that, isn't it? Like to keep people isolated. Of course. Of course. But um, but I don't, you know, that that really has changed the balance of things. And it really, at this point, means that there are no large scale protests. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's completely impossible, but I certainly don't expect them to happen. It's almost as if you think, like, it, it seems as if what you're describing, Masha, is if someone's thinking about protesting, they might not, they might even take someone from their family instead and uh, well that's actually happened uh, you know Alexei Navalny who is a an anti-corruption blogger and a very significant figure in the uh, in the uh, among the people who are opposed to Putin I try not to use the word opposition because I think it has implications that are simply not there but um, but among the people who are opposed to Putin uh, Alexei Navalny is a very important figure and so the regime has been trying to put him away and uh, uh, in the summer of 2013, they sentenced him to five years behind bars, and people poured out into the streets. About 10,000 people came out in the center of Moscow for an unsanctioned, illegal protest, so they risked everything. Right. And uh, the regime got nervous, and so the next morning, the prosecutor withdrew his request for a jail sentence and asked for... Uh, for for Navalny to be sentenced, um, to, 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 well, to, to to be put on probation, basically, uh, which is you know absurd. He'd already been sentenced. Right. You can't you can't do that. Right. But somehow, <laughs> all the rules are changing. <laughs> somehow it happened. So then they started another case, uh, and obviously these are all trumped up charges, right? Uh, these so he's he's being sued. He's he's on trial for corruption, 
this anti-corruption blogger. Uh, and um, corruption and embezzlement. And they're, they're, the charges are absurd. So, so this is what you also mean by Kafkaesque. It's right. like, it's just... It's, exactly. It's absurd. It, yes, yeah, surreal. So, um, so Navalny faced new charges alongside his brother, mm. who seems to only be... He, basically, he, he's, he's hostage. And Navalny was sentenced to house arrest. And his brother was sentenced to, uh, to, to uh, Alek was, was, was sentenced to actual jail time. So now his brother is in a prison colony. Navalny is walking free, Alexei Navalny, I mean, mm-hmm. not exactly free, but anyway, uh, because the Russian law actually doesn't contain a sanction called house arrest. The court sentenced him to it, but it's impossible. So Navalny, who is a lawyer, waited a couple of months and then said, you know what, forget it. I'm not serving this sentence under house arrest. It's illegal. Right. So he's been walking the streets, sort of flaunting um, the illegality of what they're trying to do to him. And I think he's absolutely right to do that. And it's it's a terrific and brave and wonderful thing to do. But at the same time, his brother is being literally held hostage. And not only is he in a Russian prison colony, but he keeps being, being thrown into solitary. He's essentially being tortured. And he's being tortured demonstratively. So it's very reminiscent of what was happening you know, in, in Stalin's time, when people's families would be either literally taken hostage or people would be told that their families were being held hostage in order to get them to confess to, confess to, to made-up crimes. We're going to take a short break. Today on the program, Masha Gessen is here. Wallenberg Medal winner. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Masha Gessen is here. Um, we've also got text behind the glass. Text, thanks for engineering today. Um, so this, I, 
thank you so much for talking with me today, making the time during your stay here in Ann Arbor, Masha. It's um, my pleasure. Well, it's kind of you. Um, if you're just tuning in, um, we've been talking about Masha's books, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, um, out in 2012. Um, and then Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, also with Riverhead Books, um, out in 2014. Um, and now this brings us to your latest book, The Bo the Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, out this year with Riverhead Books. Um, again, another wonderful title because it's The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy. So taking them with it because they, they are emigres. They came to the U.S. Um, they are part. Of a, it's it's a tragedy that happened here, but they're also part of America as well. Even though um, maybe in some ways that was conflicted and never felt that way. Um, I I thought Masha it was also there was something to me that was um, tender in a way. Where when reading uh, the the first part of the book, where you're talking about sort of the dislocation. Of, of the family and and maybe thinking back to your family's uh, own choice to leave when you were about 14. Um, it seems like the Sarnevs, Sarnevs um, uh, they came uh, when their youngest was eight, but Tamarin didn't come until he was 16. And I was just wondering if this also, um, I don't know, had some, like you could imagine maybe some of the experience um, because coming here when you were also that age, those, those teen years, the young, those young years. Right. So, yes, I mean, first of all, uh, as, as far as the title, I actually am very lucky to have an editor who come up, comes up with these great titles, oh, really? especially um, especially the brothers, which, which, uh, which both the title and the cover which I think is absolutely beautiful. Um, we're done. Haunting. Yeah, we're done long before I wrote the book. So uh, it was. Uh, I, I mean, they had a two-page description of what I was going to write, but because it was a very fast book, uh, and um, and covers and titles are actually done way ahead of time, in order to be put in catalogs and and to begin sort of the launch of the book. The, t the cover and the title preceded the manuscript, and um, and in some ways I wrote for the cover and for the title, uh, but um, but it was amazing. Can you I was... describe the cover for us a little bit, Masha? So, then. so, so the, what was the your cover lens? is this very—it's almost monochromatic. Uh, it's this very haunting picture of um, of Boylston Tr Street in Boston after the bombing. So it's completely deserted. The 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 street had been sealed off. Uh, and you can just see sort of debris. Uh, you can't see any remnant of the actual violence, of the actual bloodshed, but you can feel it. You can feel it in, in, in the way that it's, it's deserted, and you can just see some police barricades, um, but, no, but no people in the street. It's an amazing picture. And the thing is, much, much later, when I was almost, uh, actually at that point I was already done with the book, and I was at the trial in Boston, at the, at the Younger Brothers trial, and I saw for the first time uh, the, the complete footage off of one of the security f uh, cameras that was shown in court that hadn't been shown before. And what happens uh, on, uh, on, uh, on, that, on that footage is that you see the... 
Shamra mean it wasn't the security cameras. It was an amateur tape. This was this was what it was. So, so um, so somebody's filming, and you see the marathon, and it's incredibly colorful. It's a beautiful sunny day. It was unusually warm. Uh, International the, flags flying. Uh, you can't see flags. It was it was much closer to 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 uh, to, to the you know the sort of pedestrian level, right? So you can't see the flags, but you can see people's colorful clothes, and you could just feel the mood. And then something happens. And before you realize what has happened, there's no sound, right? Um, and before you realize what has happened, the picture goes gray. It becomes monochromatic. Um, I think what it ha- uh, the reason it happened is because so much dust was raised at, uh, in that moment uh, that everything, everything, everything became gray. But somehow the cover gets across that feeling of just the world having gone black and white or actually shades of gray. Um, so the, the the book the book is called the uh, the brothers the road to an american tragedy uh, and and that was very much what i set out to, to write about so they they had that brief for the book for and uh, the, the the title on the cover came from uh, i wanted to, to write it as an immigrant story it was very clear to me that that's what it was uh, uh, and um, you know for the sarnayevs themselves they had spent uh, this was their longest home for, uh, they had moved around their entire childhoods and they had lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a decade. That's the longest that They'd that family anywhere. stayed anywhere. That map of that's included in the book that illustrates that point is pretty powerful as well. The years and the arrows of their movements. Right. I'm 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 lucky enough to be married to a cartographer. So, uh, so my my books have maps <laughs> and uh, and really good maps from somebody who who understands uh, what I, what I'm talking about. Um, but yes, I mean they the they were born dislocated. Um, the the Tsarnaev brothers, the, uh, the the father of the family was Chechen. The mother was Anvar. Anvar, uh, uh, Avar. I'm sorry. Um, Avar is an ethnicity that's closely related to Chechens, uh, also from the North Caucasus, Muslim with a language that's closely related, but a distinct ethnic group. And one of the major distinctions is that the Chechens, along with a number of other uh, ethnic groups from the Caucasus, but not the Avars, were deported by Stalin in 1944, having been accused wholesale of collaboration with the Nazis. And um, so the entire, the entire people was packed into cattle cars and sent clear across the country to Central Asia uh, in the winter with no food, no warm clothes. In these unheated cars, uh, the journey lasted from 10 days to several weeks, depending on which train they were on. As many as half of them may have died en route um, by the time the trains arrived, uh, they they were stricken with typhus, and um, and then when they arrived, they had no shelter, they had no food. The fact that any of them survived yes, is it's, miraculous. It's another type of genocide. Then it was. It was absolutely. That's absolutely what it was. And uh, you know, and another thing that's really haunting about this to me is that this is this is 1944. The world is discovering. Uh, the uh, the death camps. This was the um, the transportation happened. Uh, the, the 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 deportation happened just a, a, a couple of months before the first of the death camps. Before 
just a couple of months before the first of the death camps were liberated uh, by Americans and then uh, by others, by, by Soviet uh, soldiers. And the world was learning and being horrified by this. And at the very same time, the Soviet Union is deporting people in cattle cars. Enacting. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, they were supposed to have rations. The hunger rations that they were supposed to have were less than the rations at Auschwitz. And they didn't get those that food. So the, 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 you know, when I was working with the archival documents, I was actually discovering these inspectors who were going um, to, the, uh, to, to these so-called settlements uh, to document what was happening there. They were trying to invent language for sort of the fine distinctions or not even the fine distinctions, but to explain what they were witnessing. Because first, they were witnessing people who were starving. And they used phrases like an extreme stage of emaciation. But then they realized that before somebody died, something else happened. Like people weren't, uh, emaciation was an earlier stage. And then something else happened, which was bloating. So they had different categories for people who were emaciated and people who were bloated. Right, People who are no longer capable of moving but were still alive, that sort of thing. So you read that. And some of those people survived. And the Chechens survived in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, where they were deported. It was another dozen years before they were allowed to return home, even though they were never allowed to reclaim their houses and reclaim their land. But they were allowed to at least return to Chechnya. But many stayed. They had no, nothing to return to. They had no resources to, to build a life anew there. And the Tsarnaev family, uh, the father's family, uh, was among the families that stayed. But they stayed in a place where they were deportees, right? Uh, they were other there. And then when the, young, uh, when, the, when the parents married in the mid-1980s, they went first back to Kyrgyzstan, uh, but the father's, uh, the, 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 the father's family didn't accept his, his new wife, because she was not Chechen. They went to Kalmykia, which is on the Caspian Sea, not too far from Chechnya. Stayed there for a bit. The, Tamerlan was born there. Then they went back to, to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, then they went to Chechnya. The war in Chechnya started. They left Chechnya. They went back to Kyrgyzstan. Then they went to Dagestan, which is in the North Caucasus. But their timing was terrible. Just as they went to Chechnya, right before the war was going to start, they went to Dagestan right as the war in Chechnya spread to Dagestan. And then finally they went to the United States. After right? September 11th. After September 11th. Also not great timing uh, to become a, to become Muslim immigrants here. And it took the family uh, almost two years to reunite because it was first the parents and the youngest uh, child, Jahar, who came. The three other children, the oldest brother and the two sisters in between, they were parked in Kazakhstan with relatives. Right. So that's another place they lived. Uh, in another ho family setting. And then finally they were all reunited and they stayed in the States. And for a while it looked like maybe this was finally going to work out. And then nothing quite worked. And I, and I think this is, um, this is where one of my strengths uh, as, as a writer lies, is that I know the precariousness of the immigrant experience firsthand. Uh, and and I hope it does feel like I'm writing uh, like there, for, but for the grace of God go I. Uh, I had a much luckier time. I had a, my parents had better timing. 
uh, better connections, greater ambitions in some ways, or greater reasons for those ambitions. Uh, I, I'm an immigrant success story, like many, many other people. But then there are hundreds of thousands of others who come here with great ambition and with great hope. And nothing terrible happens, but nothing good happens either, or not enough good things. And, um, and I think that that's how their lives unraveled. Um, and, of course, none of that determined what was going to happen later. But, uh, but it created the context in which it happened. We're going to take a short break. Today on Living Writers, Masha Gessen is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Masha Gessen is here. Um, Wallenberg Award Medal winner for 2015. Um, I can say that they couldn't have found a better person for this because you are you are speaking out and you are telling the stories uh, that need to be told. And I feel like you are saving people, Masha. So um, and giving people a chance and and telling a story like this one the brothers uh the road to an american tragedy um so that it's there's there's more there's there's human elements that are uh and stories that are told that might not make it into the paper or might not make it into the national consciousness because they're difficult stories to face. Um, like what you're saying, not everyone has the same chance or the same luck even, um, things that can happen. Uh, for example, with Tamarind, I think in the book you write that he was going to become, um, perhaps even represent the U.S. in boxing. And then at, right before he was going to enter, the rules are changed on that. And so even if you're a resident, if you're not a citizen, you no longer can represent the U.S. So it se- feels like something then is, is closed off, is taken away. Um, you're again the other, the outsider. Um, so, um, well, let's talk about the writing of the brothers, um, The Road to an American Tragedy. You said it's another, I, I love that you're saying that these books, because you are, you are, um, uh, you're right there in the moment of history, as well as thinking about it uh, and thinking about it reflectively. Um, so, but you've got this uh, time frame to work in because the story also needs to come out, <laughs> right, in a, in a in in a timely fashion. Um, so it's a fast book. So, what is your writing process like? Like, how do you do this work? 
Because you're uh, a journalist, too. You're writing for all those publications, but then you make these books. Well, uh, I am fortunately very... Uh, I am a fast writer. Uh, okay. uh, and um, although, you know, there are people who write faster. There's like uh, when, I re- uh, when I read that Oliver Sacks wrote his first book in nine days, you know, or Stephen King has written a, a, a novel in a week. <laughs> or Joyce Carol Oates, I think, writes even as she sleeps. <laughs> so... Um, I uh, uh, I mean, I generally, I have been putting out a, a book a year for a while. Uh, That's so rigorous. <laughs> it is pretty rigorous. I do, I'm lucky enough to be able to do nothing else except my writing. Uh, I uh, I think that I the part of what allows me to write so much and so fast is that I don't do anything I don't like doing. I mean, all I do is I, I write what I want to write and I lecture about what I want to lecture about. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in planes, which actually are great for write, writing. Right, those spans of time. You have to sit the in the chair and trains. do it. <laughs> Hotel rooms are great for writing as well because there are very few distractions. Um, and, you know, you don't have to cook dinner and um, and check homework, which I love doing, but I don't do that very much because I'm often not home. So, um, But the process is, it's a journalistic process. I uh, I interview a lot of people. I... And I read a lot. So the, where it's different from regular journalism is that I probably read a lot more uh, proportionally mm-hmm. than one does for an article, even a big magazine piece. Uh, so there's... Um, and you mentioned the archives too, Masha. Well, yeah. And uh, I mean, working in, 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 in uh, working with archival material is part of journalism uh, yes. very much. So um, the, you know, the doc- the documents are... are as important and sometimes much more important for investigative journalism finding the story than than uh than talking to uh, than interviewing people uh what's what may be unusual about my process is that i write longhand um and um so i, uh, I write on these uh little moleskin uh journals and uh and then i type up what i've written and so the editing happens very soon after I've drafted the chapter, I usually type it up very soon after I've I've written it out. But it's been there long enough that and and it's in a different form. So I find that going from longhand to typing on the screen actually allows me to to process the writing and and um, and hone it. It's a it's a very effective. Uh, editing process for me. So my, my copy is, in the end, very, very clean. Um, so you're sort of, as you're, you're almost, it, it almost sounds to me like you're doing a couple of things when it's going from the moleskin to the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like you're translating yourself in a way <laughs> and revising so that you're finding the, the way you want to say it. Maybe not translating. That's no, a bit too strong. Not translating and not yeah. revising. It's, it's editing because, I mean, I don't, um, I mean, I've, I also do a lot of outlining, which I think, and when I when I when I teach writing, that's what I talk about uh, a lot. Is outlining is super important. Um, so, and, so what's your walk us through your process with that? Okay, so so I outline, uh, outline a book, and while I'm writing the book, the outline is always an open document on my computer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I go back to it all the time. And I see whether if I've if I've veered from the outline, then I have to rework the outline, or I have to go back and rework the writing. Uh, 
but they cannot develop on, on parallel tracks uh, because the writing process, by definition, and this this happens with books and with lesser, uh, in, to a lesser extent with with short pieces, even really short pieces, even like a thousand word piece. Um, somewhere around the middle of the piece, you lose your way, um, and um, and you. How so? Well, you can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, when you start out, it's all clear. When you're finishing, it's all clear. But when you're in the middle, you're in the thick of it, as you well uh, as well you should be. So you can't see where you're going. So unless you have a clear outline, that's when you're going to get get bogged down. That's where, when you're going to waste a lot of time. That's possibly when you're going to start repeating yourself and lose the logic of your narrative. But if you have the outline that's you know that's that's what takes you through and you have to sort of trust the fact that you've written out a good outline and it's logical and it will take you through the rest of the process so that goes for both short pieces and long pieces uh, and an entire chapter so then uh, I, I have the book outline then i outline the chapter by hand uh, and it's a detailed outline, right? So I have I have uh, I have a short summary of the chapter that I wrote out of, ahead of time. When I sit down to write, to write the chapter, it's uh, it's a section by section outline of the chapter. Right? So the chapter is say five thousand words, and it's like a, a it's like a, a seven hundred word outline of that five hundred five thousand word chapter, and then I start drafting it out longhand in accordance with that outline. And again, I go back and I cross out every section that I've actually written. And if that's not the section, if it doesn't cover all the points that were in the outline, then something is wrong. Then I need to rework it. And, th and by that, you mean either take another look at your outline itself right. or look at the chapter or exactly. wherever you are in the process of right. the writing draft. Right. right. So, But both, both have to be logical and complete. You can't have gaps mm -hmm. in, in either of them. Um, and then... And then the final stage is typing it up uh, from 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 the longhand draft, and at that point I I don't make a lot of changes when I type it up. I just I just hone the writing. That's that's all that happens. Um, I do not make any structural uh, uh, changes to to the chapter at that point. So because you're trusting it, you've built it. I, I, I have built the it. scaffolding, and, and, the structure, right. and um, and I think that's what makes the process so fast and and relatively painless for me. Uh, is because every well, there's so much work into all right. of these steps. But but I think what makes writing painful for people is feeling lost, like feeling like you you don't have direction, feeling bogged down, uh, feeling like the task is bigger than you are, and the task of writing out an outline is not bigger than you are. It's manageable, and then the task of sticking to the outline is also not bigger than I. What do, what about write to discover though? So when you're analyzing something, have you ever f found something? So you're you're going through the outline, Masha, and then you realize something, some piece as you're analyzing the material that's mm -hmm. different. Right. Like, so then, I have to rewrite the read, outline, and then you go back to the outline right. and go through it right. with that part in mind. Right. Right. And you know, I mean, I don't think that uh, that there's any uh, there's only one way to write a book. Right. right. Uh, so that outline works. And if I draft the outline on a different day, it will be a different outline. It can work either way. Could be. You know, it? uh, yeah. it's uh, there are many different ways to tell a story, just as I, I, I love storytelling. I tell a lot of stories and um, and my family enjoys listening to them. Some of those stories because I tell them differently every time and they work every time.
Uh, so I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't think there's anything magical uh, about this. You know, I don't, I don't think there's one true outline and one true way to tell a story. But once I've, once I've drafted it, if it's working for the story, then I stick to it. That's a way to write it mm, and trust it. Yeah, Masha, thank you so much for talking with me today. Me too. It's been lovely. Um, today on Living Writers, you've been listening to Masha Gessen, a conversation with Masha, Masha Gessen. Um, the books on the table, The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, and The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. And we've got to hear about Masha's next project, which is coming. When do you think it'll be out, Masha? 2017. Maybe we can talk again then. Sure. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. But we're going to go ahead and get started with the daily sports report. Uh, it's uh, Wolverine Wednesday here on the DSR. My name's Zach Shaw. And joining me on the other side of the glass is Jeff Chan, Stuart McCloskey, Jeremy Parks. Uh, and, and we have an exciting show. Uh, we're going to talk a few sports. We're going to talk football. We're going to talk basketball. We're going to talk men's soccer. Uh and I guess we'll we'll start. I uh, I mean, c- can you guys hear me all right? Yeah. Uh, oh. I- okay. Sure. 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 Uh, yeah. Sorry, we're a little early, so we're just gonna kind of go with what we can. Uh, so Jeremy, you you've been following the men's soccer team all year. They've got their Big Ten tournament. They just had a big win against Michigan State. Uh, James Murphy had the lone goal. They they won one nothing. They only allowed two shots. Evan Loro stopped both of them. What do you what did you think of that performance? First time that they've beaten Michigan State twice in a row uh, in program history, I believe. Uh, big win for the for the team, right? Well, it shows that Coach Shakadeli is really bringing a team on the rise. I mean, bringing in players like Francis Atuahene, he's tenth in the nation actually in points uh, points scored this season, and I think it's really showing that this Michigan team is a team on the rise. Um, in years prior, this team would have next to no chance of of doing nearly what they'll be able to do in the coming weeks in terms of, of tournament action. 
Um, but before any of that can really get off the ground, they have probably their biggest game of the season tonight against Ohio State in Columbus after this Ohio State team blanked a Maryland team that anybody that knows anything about men's college soccer knows that uh, most of us do not. Sasha Sarovsky, the, the coach down at Maryland, has been there for the better part of two decades and has really put together a program there that is is uh, best in the Big Ten almost every year in this Ohio State team blanked them last week. But I think uh, the best thing that this Michigan team is bringing into it is the fact that they're coming off of some of their best play all season. They've only allowed one goal in the last five matches. Evan Loro's really been the linchpin in keeping those balls out, but also give credit to the back line, Lars Eckenrode, Billy Stevens, these guys that have really started to show what they're capable of in terms of not only defensive play, but keeping that ball pushed forward and really preventing opposing teams from getting into their defensive third. Um, to continue that against this Ohio State team, it sounds really cliche, but both teams are coming in at the top of their game, and it's going to be difficult for these Wolverines to get any opportunities, and something that they've struggled with year in and year out is converting opportunities once they get open looks in the offensive third. So for me, it really comes down to keeping the defense at the strong point that it has been at the last uh, five to seven games and really getting this offense back into the groove of scoring at every opportunity. And with players like Francis Atuahene up front and James Murphy back off of that knee injury, it's, it's going to be up to them to maximize on the opportunities because they're going to see limited of them in terms of this Ohio State defense. All right, fair enough. And for those of you just joining in, it is 6 o'clock. Uh, this is about the time that you'd be tuning into the Daily Sports Report. But we got a bit of an early start. We're talking men's soccer. And as Jeremy mentioned, the Wolverines... Head down to Columbus. They're going to take on the 23rd-ranked Buckeyes. The Buckeyes are 10-5-2. Michigan, if you uh, have not been following, which is, is quite all right, today's a good day to start. They're playing a rival team in, a, in postseason action. They're 8-4-4. Four, and, four. Uh, and and Jeremy, they're going to be the underdog. The Buckeyes are ranked 23rd in the country. Michigan has, has had their struggles, but they are playing, as you said, their best soccer uh, all season, arguably. What? But but in these upset games, something needs to happen. Something needs to bring Michigan over the edge. There needs to be some act, X factor. Maybe it's a player. Maybe it's a, a, you know, a new a new play. You see it all the time in sports. For upsets to happen, something has to either go wrong. I don't think the Buckeyes, who have won nine of ten, are going to uh, provide that advantage to the Wolverines. Or something needs to go extra right for the Wolverines. In your mind, what? What do you think the biggest X factor can be? Well, first of all, Ohio State comes in ranked 23rd in the polls. However, the thing that plays the, the biggest role in um, outside of tournament play where people are seated going forward into the tournament is the RPI rankings where Ohio State 